I'm Tom Norton, and this is the uh, the Whole Picture Podcast here on WKTV Community Media. Thank you for joining us. Fifty years ago this week, on July 16th, 1969, uh, Apollo 11 mission left the Earth bound for the moon and culminated four days later with the first humans to walk on the surface of the moon. It was a stunning techno- technological achievement, and it, it was accomplished in just nine short years. That 50th anniversary is being marked in many ways, and today our guests are well acquainted with the Apollo mission. My first guest is Glenn Swanson, a NASA historian and from uh, Wyoming, Michigan native, uh, who founded the publication Quest, uh, the only publication devoted to the history of spaceflight. Uh, he also served as a consultant on the television production, uh, uh, t- television productions of TBS's Moonshot, Rockets, and HBO's From the Earth to the Moon. Most recently, uh, Glenn published a collection of oral histories of the Apollo program, which NASA published called Before the Decade is Out, Personal Reflections on the Apollo Program. Welcome, Glenn Swanson. Thank you. And my next guest is uh, Dina. Dina Weibel. Dina Weibel. She's a cultural anthropologist who specializes in the mutual influence of scientific and religious ideas upon each other. Uh, Her most recent work focuses on religion as a motivation for an influence on space travel, along with outer space sciences. She is also the co-founder of Roger That, a celebration of space exploration in honor of Roger B. Chafee, who was killed during the testing in the Apollo 1 program. Welcome, Dina. Thank you. Um, Dean, I want to start with you uh, mm-hmm. because the, the, the Apollo program is called the largest scientific and technological endeavor undertaken by any society in human civilization. That's fair. Uh, uh, even bigger than the uh, building of the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, normally we would call that hyperbole, you know, but in the case of Apollo, it certainly wasn't. What what is it about uh, a society that takes on such a massive endeavor? What motivates them all the way through to completion? I wish I didn't want to sound a little cynical, but I will. A lot of it had to do with the competition against the Soviet Union. So, um, and part of that had a religious aspect to it. So here we were, it was during the Cold War. We were fighting the Soviets on the ground. We were fighting them in the minds of different countries. And one of the ways that we could best them was by going into, um, well, not by getting into space first, they beat us there, but having the moon um, shot being the thing that maybe we could beat them at and making that be the stronger thing. You know, it's one thing to get into space, but the American narrative makes going to the moon a lot more important than just getting into space. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of that was motivated by the fact that uh, the Soviet Union was a communist country and because they were a communist country, they didn't have this religious um, cultural aspect that the United States did. So when I've talked to a lot of people, I've done interviews with former NASA employees, um, that distinction that the United States was this country that was driven by a belief in God and interested in showing that this belief in God could make us go further. and. The, the lack of religion uh, during that time period among the Soviet Union was something that I hear a lot from the people I've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anthropologically, I mean, the, um, if we could say that, the, 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 this whole idea that 
Um, uh, you have to have someone to compete against. You have to have a, a boogeyman, so to speak, out there that you need to fight against and push back. I mean, is that at the core of I this? would say so. Um, there's a lot of research on what's this is sort of similar, religious monumental architecture. So if I'm building a pyramid or I'm building something that is a huge barrow to you know show that um, my ancestors have lived in a specific location for hundreds of years. The bigger it is, the more it's going to signal to other societies that this is mine, that I'm powerful. There's a lot of large structures that have been created throughout history in an effort to demonstrate, look, we have the resources to do this. We can waste money on this. We're not just feeding ourselves. This is something that we can really show how powerful we are. So I would say a large part of it, the competition was very important, but also it was a big signal. It was a signal of strength. And I think a lot of cultures historically, when they're in a situation where they do have surplus food and they do have extra resources, it's a way for them to demonstrate their strength. Kind of a don't mess with us. We're, mm. we're strong. And Glenn, you um, uh, particip- you've spent the better part of your life as a NASA working with NASA, the NASA historians on this whole issue of the Apollo. The the the, the idea of uh, this massive technological effort being accomplished in just nine short years. I mean, we hear all the time of, oh, we can't do this because it'll take fifty years to develop. And sometimes I look back and I think to myself, Apollo was from nothing to walking on the moon in just nine years. I mean, when the will is there, it is accomplished. Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly nothing. It, it was kind of a culmination of a lot of other technology that uh, preceded it. Um, the development of the atomic bomb, for example, is often used as a, an example, a huge effort to you know, build the first atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project. Um, there's been many studies comparing that to the Apollo program as far as manpower and pure the capital that was invested in in creating these things. And so when you build the atomic bomb, you have to have a carrier away in order to lob these bombs. And what better form of carrier than atop a rocket uh, to be able to hurl this thing anywhere in the globe in a relatively short amount of time. And so the development of ballistic missiles followed that, and then eventually, um, you know, people got the idea, why don't we replace the warhead with a human head? You know, humans, basically, okay, to go into space. Mm -hmm. And so um, the Russians, of course, did that with uh, Yuri Gagarin Mm -hmm. uh, first, and prior to that, they launched uh, an unmanned vehicle uh, that lobbed Sputnik into space. And that got a lot of attention. So there were a lot of technologies that needed to be in place uh, prior to the uh, Apollo program. But the Mm -hmm. politics, of course, um, is what drove uh, more than uh, the technology. Although there was a a marriage between the two, but the politics Mm -hmm. also emerged at the time during the Cold War that said, okay, let's start turning our eyes rather... um, from warheads, um, mm-hmm. but into sending people into space and objects into space. Because when when Sputnik happened, it was almost a panic. Oh it yeah, almost triggered a panic that the Russians could actually put something into outer space and could look at us, drop something on us. It was a, it was a real real fear. Oh yeah, fear. yeah, it was a coup. I mean, <clears throat> it was a technological coup. A lot of people uh, prior to that knew that that 
um, ability was in place. Arthur C. Clarke, for example, uh, famed science fiction writer um, in the 1950s, you know, explored the idea of putting satellites into space. So it was known that something like that could be done. The technology was there. Um, the uh, certainly the physics were in place, but uh, to actually all put it all together and actually have it happen was a big wake-up call to a lot of people. And when that thing, you know, could go over and people would look at it uh, in the night sky, so you know you could see it, even if you didn't understand exactly you know, the physics behind putting it in space, the politics behind why it was there, Mm -hmm. but you could see it and you could hear it. If you tuned in uh, amateur radios or on television or radio, you could hear the beep, beep, beep. So it was very much, uh, um, you know, a political tool that uh, opened up a lot of people's eyes to, wait a minute, if they Mm -hmm. can do this, you know, what else can they do? Tell us a little bit about that moment of Sputnik, that crossing a threshold you know, for the first time, mm-hmm. human civilization is now experiencing a signal from away from the Earth. Right. And it's generated by an enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, there's an omniscience about this idea of this beep, beep, beep going around mm-hmm. the Earth and generated by... It, talk to us about the, the anthropology of that, how, how civilizations react. Cause I, what I really what I'm trying to get at here is this whole this whole buildup? We talked about the rockets coming out of World War II and mm-hmm. Werner von Braun and whatnot, but there's this whole this whole impetus, this 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 building, this groundswell that starts to go. Well, I think it's interesting that you mention um, you know Werner von Braun too, because what Sputnik reminds me of a little bit is the bombing raids that went on, the Blitz, where you had this sort of fearful thing in the sky that's circling you. I mean, the sky has always been this mysterious thing, right? And so you have occasional things in nature that come out of the sky, and some of them are dangerous. Um, But I think the idea that the Soviets put something up there and it began to circle the globe was really kind of terrifying in one respect because Americans didn't know what it was doing exactly. Was it watching us? Was it capable of dropping something on us? So the idea that something was out there um, that could harm us potentially, especially so soon after World War II, um, was something that was in everybody's minds. And that idea that they had sort of surpassed us was tremendous as well. Um, From an anthropological perspective, nothing like that had existed before. So I think there have always been stories of gods and dragons and other things coming from the sky. But to have something be real and have something to be scientific, the biggest fear was that they were so beyond what the U.S. could do that we would never catch up and we would always be sort of subject to them. And I'm just thinking about a friend of mine at Grand Valley State University. He's retired now, but he wanted to become a rabbi. And because of Sputnik, he was encouraged to go into the sciences instead. And that triggered this huge push in American society to, you know, oh, my gosh, we have to catch up. We have to put our brains to this because otherwise we're doomed. And... um, I don't know exactly if that right. was weird. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's kind of interesting, Glenn. I mean, without Sputnik, would there have been an Apollo 11? Uh, well, n- no, I, I don't think so, because you had to have first, 
sending an object into space just to prove that it could be done. So in essence, they kind of, in a certain, in a certain weird twist, they kind of won in a weird way. Well, well, well they, they proved the ability <clears throat> to be able to do that. And, but when you're looking back at you know, the rockets that they used to launch that, again, going back to this idea that you had an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, that the Russians had built. And it was not specifically built for Sputnik. It was built for a thermonuclear weapon. And basically they replaced that with this benign, you know, scientific um, uh, satellite uh, to hurl over. But the message was very clear that this could have been replaced with, you know, a warhead. Uh, it could have been, you know, on there. But there was a reason for, um, you know, the idea that they could launch um, a satellite using this missile. The technology that the Russians had, you know, they had the bomb as well. The United States had the bomb also. But when you look at thermonuclear weapons, you also look at capability for deployment of these things. How big are they? How heavy are they? Mm -hmm. And the Russians, even though they had the ability, they had the bomb, they didn't have a light bomb, a bomb that could basically be easily carried uh, to the United States and to other strategic locations using their bombers. They just did not have the range to do that because the bombs were very heavy. And so what better way to do that is to replace using an aircraft with a missile. So they put a lot of their technology and efforts into developing a missile carrying capability to put these things into, mm -hmm. uh, to deploy them. And so they did have that, you know, ahead of us. I mean, we were working on things at that time, but they basically leapfrogged basically out of this necessity to have a carrier for their thermonuclear weapons mm -hmm. to be able to deploy them, where our bomber capability was, was pretty good. And then also the lightness and weight of our ballistic missiles, you know, the, the warheads allowed us to deploy them using aircraft quite effectively or intermediate range ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. Missiles that couldn't achieve orbit, but could be placed, say, in Turkey and things like that, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. be lobbed over into the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union, to reach us, had to cross these huge amounts of water. Mm -hmm. So they're <laughs> a much bigger, bigger range. Yeah, yeah, so they needed a, a larger capability. And of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis thing, mm -hmm. You know, now suddenly they're in our backyard. Right, right. <laughs> you know, they're only 92 miles away, and so they could have these relatively uh, smaller-powered missiles, you know, mm -hmm. launch uh, nuclear warheads um, to mainland the United States quite easily. There's a kind of there's a kind of poetry, if you will, about this idea that it, the origin of the propulsion, the origin of the, the 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 thrust of it all, if you will, no pun intended or pun intended, is that it it it, it is all meant for war, and for destruction, and then and then it ends with this culmination of peacefully walking on the surface mm -hmm. of the moon mm -hmm. and returning to Earth to this jubilant yeah. victory. Yeah, worldwide. Well, yeah. many times, um, you know, a lot of um, what we see as science and more of, you know, going there because it's there type of thing mm -hmm. ride on these needs or desires or necessities for, um, you know, protection. You know, mm -hmm. the, the atomic bomb, the development of the atomic bomb, the Panama Canal, you know, going mm -hmm. further back. You know, this was a need for security. This was a need, um, you know, for an economical way for shipping and things like that. And so you had these tremendous engineering feats, technology as well, mm -hmm. with the Manhattan Project. And so all of these things, there's a continuum, if you will, of these technological developments that, um, 
if you want to look at culmination in landing on the moon, so, you know, you can because all these other things need to precede that. You know, the development, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the technology, you know, uh, transistor. You can you can look at all that because <laughs> mm-hmm. you need to make things lighter in weight and technology. Mm-hmm. You know. there's, there's two there's two points. I see. I think I was born too late. Um, there's two points that I would have loved to have been alive and working as an industry professional. And in, in for, for film and television, I would have loved to have been working during the uh, studio system of the 30s and the 40s mm-hmm. and the 50s. And uh, my interest in science, I would have loved to have been working at the points of Mercury and Gemini and going into Apollo. Talk to us a little bit about the Mercury program. Uh, it, that was the, is it Mercury or Gemini? Was Mercury is the Mercury first. Is the, first, the very yeah. first. Um, so nascent and it's you know you we see the we see the film clips of the rockets exploding on the pad and and, mm-hmm. and then finally being able to put uh, a man in low earth orbit uh, for just a short period of time eventually yeah, yeah and eventually <laughs> and it was such a um, it was such a uh, uh, a moment to show that we could capture we could catch up to the soviets mm-hmm. and that this was doable and then that went into gemini so we end up with Apollo and uh, uh, Apollo 1. I mean, talk to us a little bit about the technology that was needed. I mean, computers were not really anywhere close to what we conceive of as a computer today. Uh, the slide rule was essentially the, 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 the big means. Um, uh, talk to us about the technology that it took to get in that nine that nine year span, so I mean, we had the lead up to it, but now okay, we're going to the moon, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was uh, uh, Webb was the NASA administrator at the time mm-hmm. at the launch, and uh, uh, for him to amass this titanic effort, um, uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Wow. <laughs> in, in 30 words or less. In 30 words or less, 30 seconds or less. Well, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's graduate classes that are basically on one of those topics, wow. and that's all they mm-hmm. focus it on. Uh, but, um, you know, just looking at the progression of things from Mercury to Apollo, well, prior to that, of course, the launch of the first U.S. Um, satellite in space, which mm-hmm. was Explorer 1, mm-hmm. um, proved that we could do it. Uh, we could launch a uh, an object into orbit, which was sent aloft using a Redstone or Jupiter missile, mm-hmm. which ironically was manufactured here in Michigan oh. <laughs> by the Chrysler Corporation in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Um, and that very booster that was used to hurl Explorer One um, in 1958 was also used a modified version to launch the first American into space, which was uh, Alan Shepard on May. Fifth, nineteen sixty-one, after Yuri Gagarin, but we had to prove that you know we could launch a human into space, just like the Russians could prove that they could launch um, a human into space as well. Yuri Gagarin went into orbit, went into mm-hmm. one orbit before it went down, which was a huge leap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their um, missiles had that capability; it had more than enough thrust, more than enough uh, payload capability, because you know they were going to launch a heavy nuclear weapon and now in place of that they're launching one human Mm -hmm. so they had more than enough uh, energy to do that whereas here in the United States we didn't quite have that yet Um, so we needed to launch um, you know human space first so we launched 
uh, Alan Shepard and then Gus Grissom into suborbital launches, which are basically these big roller coaster arc rides that uh, allowed them to go up for about 10 or 15 minutes, but to prove that you could function into space. Uh, Yuri Gagarin showed that, you know, only days before Alan Shepard, but we needed to also show ourselves that we could do it, we could track it, we had the technology to recover them. Uh, so, you know, these are baby steps that we need to do. And then once that was done, then the Gemini program uh, followed on, and that uh, introduced other technologies that allowed us to show that we could do mainly uh, three things. One was extended duration stays into space, mm -hmm. okay, where we could stay for longer periods of time because the last Mercury flight uh, was still just under a day. We didn't, we haven't stayed up there very long, and we knew that if we were going to go to the moon, that we're going to have to be up there for a long period of time. We're also going to have to rendezvous and dock, and so Gemini proved that, allowed us with the technology to be able to dock with a vehicle so that we could, you know, come up to it, dock it, and then separate, and then, and then move on. And then, of course, the third big thing was having all of this system in place in order to track all of that, okay, communicate with all of that. So, you know, it was the next big step uh, that allowed us to um, prove that we could do those things. And then finally, you know, culminating in, in the Apollo program, which, you know, sent us <clears throat> ultimately to the moon and back. Sure. And we'll talk about, you know, all the interesting elements of the Apollo program. I'm interested in, in uh, this idea of creating imagery mm -hmm. that the common person can connect with and believe in and, and incorporate into their psyche right. with regard to this idea of space exploration. Interestingly enough, you know what it is for me? The, 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 the connective, and this would be a great disappointment to every scientist <laughs> out there, but the, when I was growing up, I dream of Genie, mm -hmm. the opening of that capsule. Right. I always thought that capsule was cool. And, and that kind of connected to me that this whole idea of space program and, and, and uh, um, you know, uh, w was all part of something that was, I could get my mind around as a, as a kid. Um, talk to us a little bit about the imagery and, sure. and the importance of it. And someone might even say the propaganda. Oh, definitely. I mean, I was just sitting here thinking when we were talking earlier about sort of the military motivations behind this. If you want to get the community um, behind you so that people are supporting something, it has to be more than just this is an important military thing. Mm -hmm. So it becomes about honor. It becomes about the American character. It becomes about religious people proving their worth above non-religious people. I mean, that was actually a real motivation. I think one of the things that was going on with these programs, and it's kind of interesting because Glenn can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but when we were doing um, Mercury and maybe the beginnings of Gemini, I don't think the moon was really the goal. Von Braun was interested, for instance, in space stations and various things, and it was when Kennedy set the moon that that kind of changed. But during that time period with the Mercury 7, the publicity that these astronauts received as being these sort of superhuman beings, right? They had gone through so many tests and were so perfect physically, mentally, psychologically, and they were the best of the best, and they were Americans, and they were making us proud. And they were almost, one would dare say, there was an Aryan Kind of a chiseled look to them all, yeah, and they I were all—they were all, yeah. yeah. 
And um, there wasn't a lot of effort for diversity or looking into right. certain. I mean, there were women who were tested in sort of a, a side program. You may have heard of the Mercury 13. There were tests done that indicated that women were actually better suited to space travel. The smaller bodies, huh? um, they would use less oxygen. Their endurance was a lot better for some of the testing that was done for astronauts. But it wasn't the image that NASA was trying to, you know, create. And so what you wanted was this sort of, dare I say it, sort of like a football team, you know, this sort of, this is our team, and look at these guys, and they're going to go up there and do this amazing stuff. And the pop culture of the 1960s, as we're getting toward the moon landings, it's, you know, the number of TV shows. I think really the 50s is when we started mentally preparing for space. Um, that makes sense because of when Sputnik happened and when the um, both American and Soviet space programs sort of took off. But I find it fascinating how much cultures, large cultures like ours, prepare for things ahead of time. I always think science fiction is almost a lab where we come up with ideas mm -hmm. for things we want later. Mm -hmm. So you can look at Star Trek episodes and look at technology that we started to have in the you know 90s and 2000s and oh because we it's almost like a wish list. Mm -hmm. And so when it's I Dream of Genie, it was part of that glamour. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but also you know these brave guys who were doing these things and you know a little bit of Orientalism and a little bit of Florida vacation and it, there was a lot going on there. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I can see why it was so popular. And I think it really kind of helped make the American public think about the space program every week. Right, right. And you had a lot of charismatic figures, too, that came yeah, to play. very important. I mean, you know, Dina mentions Werner von Braun, for example, and in the 1950s, you know, and Disney. Uh, Walt Disney um, uh, sided with Werner von Braun to produce a series of uh, you know television specials that were mm -hmm. uh, part of his Tomorrowland uh, yeah. theme park because yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Disney opened up in 1955, uh -huh. and so here you are, you know, during mm -hmm. this time. It's what mm -hmm. better marriage is to have this, you know, German-accented uh, mm -hmm. uh, scientist mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. was very confident and very the charismatic. Epitome of science. Yeah, yes, you know, exactly, you yeah. right, you know, preceded him. You know, mm -hmm. you had to have a German scientist, sure. you know, with that accent. Central casting, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and he was accent, good looking, yeah. chiseled, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, spoke very eloquently. He was almost the Carl Sagan of his time for mm -hmm. you know rocketry. Mm -hmm. And uh, putting all aside his Nazi associations his and everything past, else yeah. from World War Two, but. Um, um, so, you know, it prepared the American public and that along with the Collier series. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how old you are, magazines. but the magazines that came out mm -hmm. in, um, in the 1950s. So people really were embracing this and seeing this. And, of course, this was following on World War II, you know, the success right. of World War II, where we saw, you know, the jet age starting to come in. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, with the atomic weapons and things like this and science. And so people were really saying, yeah, maybe we could do this. Yeah, and it's interesting how it, culturally it all feeds on itself. Like, I'm a, I'm a classic car enthusiast, mm -hmm. and I really love the cars of the late 50s. Yeah. And it's so funny because the transmissions are astroglide. Right, or the names and, of the cars, and the, the Galaxy. The, the Galaxy, Galaxy 500. And, and, you know, I mean, it's the just, Nova. Yeah, the Nova, <laughs> and 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 uh, just all the chrome, and everything has that space yep. and rocket kind of right. like, feel to it. Right. And Sometimes you wonder if 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 marketers were responding to popular notions or or popular notions were driving the marketing. 
I think both. I mean, those mm-hmm. things kind of build on each yeah. other. Mm-hmm. And so it it was creating this massive amount of enthusiasm in the public. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that by the time the Apollo program rolled around, everyone was in favor of it. Right. It's far from that. But there was a lot of, how can I put this, almost like a sense of pride in entering the space age and that idea of the space age, that the United States had moved forward evolutionarily. We were no longer the sort of ground-based people. We could go into space and our music was going to reflect that Mm -hmm. and our cars were going to reflect that and the way we dressed was going to reflect that. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like putting on this sort of new outfit, like presenting ourselves in a new way. Yeah, exactly. And it's still, you know, it stands out. It's a watershed moment. it's, It's one of these achievements that's used as a benchmark. You know, you've, I don't know if it's as common now, but Um, the phraseology, well, if we can land a man on the moon, why can't we? We, You know, and it's the we part. And Mm -hmm. man, you know, generically being all of us, if we can do this, why can't we do this? Mm -hmm. You know, and people still perceive that, you know, it's, it's like, wow, we could, you know, go there. And, um, and I often, you know, we'll, we'll talk with people and I'll, uh, it's, it's difficult you know, when you look at the reasons why we went to the moon, mm-hmm. you will also in find in those reasons why we haven't been back because it was very much a politically oh, sure. driven, sure. Uh, circumstantial event that there's, is difficult, if not impossible, to repeat for the period of time. And there's a sense of crossing. It was also crossing a threshold. We went from being coming out of the cave and throwing rocks at the moon mm-hmm. And we crossed this threshold to actually, you know, going to the moon. And once we did that, and so there's so much about Apollo I want to talk about, but you introduced a really interesting subject, is the fall off. This unbelievable, titanic, epic, you can use all the hyperbolic words that you want and say we, that we achieved this amazing goal. And then I was reading by November of 1969, just a few scant months after we walked on the moon, the public was like, oh, we're on the moon again. Mm-hmm. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. That's what, you know, let's, <laughs> let's move on. What's let's next? change let's the channel. Mars. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that, the two of you. Although the cultural thing is uh, your forte. That yeah. um, Well, I definitely think it, it was something that everybody was sort of excited by but there had been so much that I think there was maybe this sense of overkill at Mm. that point where people did want something else Um, I would say the social movements of the late 1960s were pointing things in a different direction so it's like when you think about the other big thing that happened in the summer of 1969 being Woodstock that overlap I mean it's a very different feel Woodstock doesn't feel space age Mm. Woodstock was a return to something more organic and a return mm-hmm. to something mm-hmm. more natural. And I think that was a reaction in part against the idea of the space age. And so by the time we enter the 70s, I don't know, pop culture is an interesting kind of thing because 70s, we sort of mm-hmm. start there, but by the end, it's disco and Buck Rogers and we're back in space in mm-hmm. an interesting way. So, um, and yes, I do think disco and space are absolutely interlinked. (laughs) (laughs) um, I think part of it was just that sense that 
okay, we've done it, we've proven it, and boy, we've been thinking a lot about this lately, so maybe we just want to turn our attention elsewhere. Elsewhere. Yeah, and it, it, it was all brought out during a period, you know, you, you look at um, uh, the environmental movement as mm-hmm. well. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, Apollo That's 8, and you might want to comment yeah. on that as well, which was... Um, well, go ahead. Yeah, there's there's a very good story behind that. <laughs> okay, so Apollo 8 was the first time we went to the moon without getting out of our rocket. Mm-hmm. So Apollo 8 sent three astronauts to orbit the moon and come back to kind of prove that we could do that. And during that mission, Bill Anders got this amazingly famous photograph uh, called Earthrise. Oh, sure. And it was... It was a stamp. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's, you it's everywhere. And um, you get this beautiful kind of horizon on the moon and the earth in not it's not a full earth it's probably three quarters it's a waxing earth i guess and it's blue and it looks beautiful and it was the first time that humans had seen their planet from such a distance and it was the only color right in the field because the the moon sure. itself was just very gray space was black and then you have this blue just shining there mm-hmm. and um that photograph became, you know, sent back to Earth. It became extremely popular, and it influenced what has been called by an author named Frank White the overview effect. And so Frank White has written about this considerably. It's something I'm interested in my research, too, the effect of seeing the Earth from space. And there's two kind of pieces to that. One is the effect on astronauts, which is very different from what we get when we look at a photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, it can lead to a sense of awe, a sense of not being sure, a sense of religious awakening. There's a number of astronauts who've looked at the Earth from space and had these moments where it's so difficult to comprehend that your brain just kind of has this, like, has to rework everything it knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really brings to home that we've got this tiny little oasis in space that's the only place where humans can live and how mm-hmm. tiny it is. And there's this thin ribbon of right, atmosphere exactly. around it. And, yeah. But what it did, the photographs of it did, was allow us to see the Earth as this biome, as this space station for the first time. And it really spurred, um, it was used, that image was used a lot in the environmental movement, this idea of ecology and this idea of protecting the Earth. And instead of it being, this is where we live, we were able to think about the planet abstractly, able to look at it from the outside mm-hmm. for the first mm-hmm. time. And once we were able to do that, it became something that we could lose mm. in a way that didn't make sense when we were just living there. And um, I don't know, you're probably a little young for this, but when I was growing up, there was a TV show called The Big Blue Marble on PBS. Oh, I remember that. It was for kids. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea of it, um, the environmental movement used the idea of Earth from space as a symbol. And I think that was a very powerful image. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't remember this, I don't remember the moon landing, um, but the, what I do remember viscerally is driving a car on the moon. And I remember when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and just glued to the television, mm-hmm. and I just thought that was so unbe- excuse me, unbelievably cool that they were actually driving a car. I don't know why I just interjected that. That just popped into my brain. Um, the the Apollo mission, um, uh, go fever. Mm. The phrase go fever. Mm. Let's talk about a little bit about that. Um, it, it, it got us there in nine years. Right. And it had a downside. Yeah, the 
the the go fever was basically this idea that um, we have a mandate that was put in place by John F. Kennedy to land a uh, man on the moon and return him safely, but before the end of the decade, and NASA was on a roll. I mean, uh, we had the Mercury program, and you're correct. Mercury at that time we didn't have uh, the mandate to go to the moon. That came later when John F. Kennedy, after the Mercury program closed, basically was looking at, oh my gosh, let's do something that's even more spectacular and landing a man on the moon would certainly allow us to leapfrog the uh, amazing Soviet achievements um, uh, many times over. So NASA, you know, basically um, Congress approved a tremendous amount of funding to put in place this huge effort to get to the moon. And, um, you know, Gemini, like I mentioned before, was following that. The technology that was needed to do that had to go in place. And so we went through all of Mercury. We went through all of Gemini program with no real major um, problem. And then now we are at the dawn of the Apollo program. We were ready, basically, to test our first Apollo spacecraft, which was called Apollo 1, mm -hmm. uh, Apollo 204. Mm -hmm. And that proved to be... Um, you know, a pivotal moment in the whole history of the program. Um, it was the first um, three-man spacecraft that would take us to the moon. Uh, the astronauts on board that um, mission uh, were Roger B. Chaffee, who was a native of Grand Rapids, and uh, Gus Grissom. And then um, the third person was um, uh, White, Ed White. Uh, all three of these were ready to go. And in January of 1967, uh, January uh, 29th, 1967, excuse me, 27th, 1967, um, there was a test um, down at the Kennedy Space Center. It was a routine test in that uh, basically the rocket itself was not fueled, but uh, the capsule uh, was pressurized with 100% pure oxygen at about 16 pounds per square inch. And um, they were basically um, going to test, you know, communications back and forth uh, between mission control and the spacecraft. And this was in an evening. It was on a Friday evening when this occurred. Um, the crew were on there. They had a bunch of glitches prior to that. It was not, things were not going very well. And there was the, a spark that occurred inside the spacecraft. And with 100% pure oxygen at that pressure, you basically were a crucible. And Jeez. the fire uh, engulfed the spacecraft and uh, killed all three of the crew members. And so this amazing achievements of, you know, Mercury and Gemini up through this uh, were seen in the public eyes. My gosh, what in the world happened? You know, mm -hmm. we, we were doing a fantastic job. Yeah. And they were. They were doing an amazing job. But um, the contractors, there were warning signs prior to that, that right. there were problems. <clears throat> Uh, NASA was um, uh, maybe too confident in itself. You know, mm -hmm. they were they were doing things too quickly, uh, mm -hmm. knowing that okay, we had all these successes. What's to prevent us from doing more? They were riding the back of a galloping technology, if you will, right? Exactly, and couldn't yeah. dismount for fear of breaking their necks. Right. And again, they had this goal of landing a man on the moon before the end of the decade, and they had all of these tests and other missions that they needed prior to that. And so mm -hmm. there, there was a lot of pressure. 
And everything so came to a screeching halt. Everything just came to a halt for about 18 months. There was a lot of inquiries and, you know, looking back at that accident today, uh, perhaps one would wonder if we would have made it to the moon. Uh, because, oh, sure. um, you know, if it had uh, happened in space, if, if it, if it oh. happened, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 so, um, so yeah, the go, the, the go fever, uh, basically uh, became um, <laughs> too much, and uh, it allowed NASA to pause and reset itself, which mm-hmm. it needed. And most historians are in full agreement that if it wasn't for that tragedy, something else worse would have happened. And we very well might have never made it to the to the moon because, like Dina mentioned, if something like that happened in space or happened in orbit around the moon, they would uh, still be there. Yeah. Who the perception, you know, what uh, what the public uh, response would have been, at least here, would have happened at home, which made the whole accident in the public's eye even more. Um, incredulous because mm-hmm. it didn't happen in space. You know, everyone was prepared to have something happen in space because that was dangerous. You mm-hmm. know, things happen quickly. We understood that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Rocket is blasting off. Right. You exactly. know, it is re-entering. It's, it's a fireball outside. <laughs> you know, you are riding on you know this huge explosive giant that was built by the lowest bidder. Right. You know, and so something <laughs> what could, go, could wrong, go wrong. You know. <laughs> So to happen on this routine test that wasn't even uh, televised, you know, it was just another another test, really took a lot of people by surprise. And so people were thinking, yeah, if it happens during a test, what might happen in space when you didn't have all this backup system and all this support system that was readily available here mm-hmm. on the ground. You know, and space. the Russians that we were competing against, they had their own catastrophe yeah. that as a result of their own, probably their own go fever in competing with us. Yeah. We better. They, yeah, they, yeah. They, they, did they have a rocket well. explode on the pad just shortly before and mm-hmm. then knock them out of the race? Um, well, they were building a, uh, a booster similar to the Saturn V called the N1. And uh, this was all unmanned. And there were uh, several tests of that. And each test um, was an all-up stack test where you had multiple engines all firing at the same time. Many, many uh, 30-some engines, I think, on the first stage that were, that were firing. So it makes the you know the the SpaceX heavy look benign, you know, mm-hmm. as far as as a number of, of engines firing at the same time, and this massive booster just failed, you know, um, both times or three times during uh, its unmanned test flights, and the last one that occurred was um, shortly after or before the Apollo launch itself, and but and that kind of just set them back uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, there, there's a lot more prior to that about how far they were into the race. But why is it? You th- why do you think the Russians gave up? They did, well, they, that they didn't. They, they eventually they would have been able to put a Russian on the moon if they had kept at it. What was their? I mean, you had that spectacular explosion on the pad um, just shortly uh, before, which quote unquote knocked them out of the race. But then they didn't pursue that any further. Well. I'm One of the things when why. Kennedy placed that uh, goal before Congress on May 25th, 1961, uh, you know, it, it was quiet. There was a lot, of the, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. You know, here we are, we've just barely sent a person into space for a day. You know, this was in 1961. Um, 
and now you want us to send people to the moon? <laughs> that was a huge, huge jump. But Kennedy knew that in order for to gain maximum political benefit of this, to kind of be the culminating uh, decision to close the gap that mm -hmm. was perceived during his campaign and, of mm -hmm. course, uh, with Eisenhower, that there was this missile gap, mm -hmm. was because... All of his advisors knew, his scientific advisors knew, in order to go to the moon, we're going to have to have this huge launch vehicle. The Russians didn't have it. We knew that. We didn't have it. We knew that. Mm -hmm. So basically, the race, whatever advances that they had, would be reset when you threw that challenge in the ring because he knew they would have to also build a booster mm -hmm. like we would. We had the resources. We had the technology. We had the funds to do that because both sides of the ocean knew that they would be having to place the same amount of effort to build this super booster to get us to the moon. So it, it kind of reset the race. Mm -hmm. So even though the Russians were ahead prior to that with all these other achievements, he Even knew, a brand new goal. He knew that if he placed mm -hmm. this goal of landing a man on the moon, the Russians said, oh my gosh, if we're going to enter this race, we're going to have to also build the same booster. Sure. Can we do that? So now the race was reset to zero. It's like you, they, right. they made the, the starting point the same thing with neither side ahead. Do you, think, do you think that Kennedy and the folks at NASA and Johnson, do you think they thought it was attainable? I mean, there was a reset of the field. But do you think they thought it was yeah, attainable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the goal before the end of the decade was kind of a, a moving thing. Yeah, uh, James Webb in some uh, talks says, you know, we could make it to the moon in 1968. Now, when he's saying to the moon, be in the vicinity, basically mm -hmm. orbiting the moon uh, by the end of the decade. Um, but within two or three years, they were in pretty much agreement that, yeah, it could be done. It mm -hmm. could be done. Um, with you know these huge appropriations, which made everyone very very nervous. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the peak of the Apollo program, when funding was basically something like five percent of the budget. I mean, it was a huge amount of money, mm -hmm. and everybody knew this, especially Kennedy. I mean, you were, when you were looking at taking fifty cents a week out of everyone's paycheck, okay, to pay for this project, that's a huge amount of money, mm -hmm. and people were looking. Can we do this? Will you know? Will the public support this? You know, uh, and there was a lot of skepticism. In fact, Kennedy was looking at backing away from that idea because he knew that it would cost a tremendous amount of money and a lot of political clout in order to. Uh, and he was only a one-term president. I right. mean, he was looking to get reelected, just like any sure. any politician at the time. And he was this young, youthful president, and there was a lot of skepticism. A lot of people forget that. Um, that there wasn't, you know, 100%, you know, even though there was go fever, there wasn't this huge outpouring of support. I mean, a lot of people were very interested, but um, when you look at the numbers over time, uh, there, was, there was a lot of skepticism. Mm -hmm. okay. I want to ask you both, uh, imagine no Apollo. Mm -hmm. what, is, what, is, what is the United States, what is technology, what is the world? No Apollo. It never happened. Mm -hmm. Wild speculation, kind of reverse science. <laughs> That's fiction. one of those <laughs> <laughs> counterfactuals. Yes, exactly. A good game, a good parlor game played by historians. What yeah. if? What if? Yeah. Do we still get uh, Mercury and Gemini? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Apollo One. Roger Chafee, Ed White, Gus Grissom are killed. Mm -hmm. It's brought to an end. 
You know, one of the things that, that, that you know, I've read and, and studied before is that, uh, you know, the whole idea of Kennedy had survived also is mm. another, mm-hmm. another uh, event that goes in there. Because um, he was a very cautious, he could yeah, be a cautious yeah, politician. What, what, uh, whether, whether the, the agreement, the short answer is the agreement is, is that um, we most likely would have gone to the moon, but uh, not necessarily by 1969. Now, um, you know, maybe it was in 1970, 1972, whatever that we achieved. Because you have to also look when you when you play games like that, how many contracts were already in place? Oh, you know, how much sure. superstructure, how much funds were allocated already? The dies were set. I guess the milling like, machine was in yeah. place. You know, they had already put all this, and so the investment the investment mm-hmm. was made. So you're looking at okay. You know, you you can't throw all that away because mm-hmm. this stuff has been spread throughout the South and to other constituents that were also very powerful players. You know, in this, so um, I, I don't doubt that we, we would have made it to the moon. Okay, but um, I think if there were any differences, it probably would have occurred later, mm-hmm. not by 1969. And my question is more like, what would society have not experienced if we had not gone to the moon? I mean, apart from cordless drills, I mean, what, <laughs> what would what would we have not uh, enjoyed today as as uh, culturally, technolo- technologically, and so on? I don't. I mean, it's it's all speculation, but I think about Just the, the mental boost that it gave us to sort of defeat the Soviets at something. So I think there would have been, hey, Soviets got the first satellite in space. They got the first human in space. The first woman in space. What did we do? And that f- sense of a lag might have been something that weighed on the American public. I'm not saying it would not have led, you know, the fall of the Iron Curtain wouldn't have happened. But mm-hmm. I think perhaps the moon was such a spectacular thing. And once again, you're talking about propaganda. It was such a, you know, strong propaganda cool. that if that had not happened, maybe the United States would not have seemed in the... 70s and 80s and 90s to be superior in some ways to mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. And I think the moon was less saying, you know, ha. Right. And that that's technical speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if that hadn't happened, maybe there would have been kind of a, a domino effect in a, it would have been more understated and maybe right. we would not have had such a strong showing against them afterwards. Right. Almost kind of like, you know, corollary, you know, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella financing Columbus, mm-hmm. what it did for Spain for the next 200, 300 years. You know, uh, that that incredible discovery and voyage into the unknown. And that's what Apollo may have done for us. But in retrospect, when you look at, um, you know, the fact that it did happen, um, you know, people are going to look back at the 20th century now. You know, we're in the 21st century, and they're going to they're going to see that my gosh, we left the planet. And one of the things that I'm continually amazed at is when you look back at not only the technology but the political will at the time and the whole um, environment um, of the world at that time. The fact that we did it, you know, during that time was amazing. And um, I think certainly the death of Kennedy helped. The death of Bobby Kennedy helped. The death of Martin Luther King helped. You know, 
King and, and Bobby Kennedy both were killed in 1968, and that was on you know the eve of Apollo 8. Right. You know, Apollo 8, of course, was in many, many circles, um, was seen as even a greater achievement for its time than Apollo 11 because you basically went to the moon. Um, we were able to get there. And this was the first time humans had rode, you know, atop the Saturn V. We had only had two flights of that massive booster prior to uh, going to the moon. We had Apollo 4 and 6. And so, and there were problems with both of those missions that they had to overcome. And so the odds of them getting to the moon and back were even less than Apollo 11. And so it was just an amazing moment and, and happening in December at the end of the year around Christmas time. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of a very tumultuous year, you know, um, there's been a, a letter that uh, it circulates around that was sent to NASA at the time that said, thank you for saving 1968. Yeah. Because it was a horrible time. Horrible year. It was a horrible yeah. year. You yeah. had the civil rights movement. Right. You know, there's so much, so much going on. So Apollo 8 certainly was, was uh, an amazing mission. And then, you know, if it wasn't for the success of that, we certainly wouldn't have had the other flights, which culminated in Apollo 11. Sure. But again, to look back at that time and say that we were able to leave our planet in the 1960s was just, it's, a, it's amazing. It really is. Um, oh, I was just going to say, one of the things that's uh, metaphorical um, or sort of an analogy that comes up a lot is spacefaring versus seafaring. And I think about the difference between the first Vikings that found the New World yeah. um, and how that really didn't lead to anything. So we have evidence that Vikings were, mm -hmm. you know, in North America, and they kind of looked around and packed up and went home. Said, meh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you have Columbus, and Columbus is motivated by trade, and he's motivated by all these other things, and it's much more public, and it suddenly... You know, it took a while, though. You know, 1492, we don't see the first, and it's more complicated, obviously, because North America was populated. Um, when we're talking about the moon, fortunately, it doesn't seem to be populated. But if you think about um, with Columbus, uh, the colonization of North America by Europeans didn't start in, like, the 1490s. There was this roughly 50-year period where it was like, we know what's there, we've gotten there, well, you know, let's think about it. And then eventually um, the European... Gold. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I saw a talk given by Kevin Fong. He's a really interesting person. He's on BBC, but he also has an MD, and he, he's an anesthesiologist, and he worked for NASA, and he's ridiculously multi-talented. He is the host of the 13 Minutes to the Moon podcast, if mm. you've heard of that. And he was giving a talk, and he was talking about that delay of about 50 years and saying that throughout exploration, like the first people to go to the North Pole, then there's this delay of about 50 years until the second team comes back. And so there seems to be a human thing where we go and we do something really hard or go somewhere new and then sort of regroup. And he was making the argument that it's roughly 50 years. Sometimes it can be 70, sometimes it can be 30. Mm -hmm. But it was sort of an optimistic idea that we've been to the moon. 
it's normal for us to be to chill for to a while. chill for a while right. and then build up our strength to go back. And with that, I mean, we'll go back to Apollo because this, this is the week of Apollo. But um, uh, the next, Glenn, is, is it Mars? I mean, you know, why aren't we on Mars? Why aren't we? <laughs> why don't we? Why aren't we Martians? <laughs> oh, the well, you know, the the leap to going to Mars. Would Although, we would be a, would we be on Mars now had we not quit Apollo? You know there was there was talk um, at the time and and, and a lot of um, uh, folks don't realize that um, the uh, the the next logical step would be go go to Mars. I mean if we can go to the moon, let's go to Mars next. And um, so there were a lot of studies that were done in the 1960s about okay this is a natural progression. All right, we go to Go the moon first. I'll go to Mars next, but um, again, the cost factor is huge, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the technology uh, needed to go to Mars. It, it's basically okay. You're going to the corner drugstore versus you know going over to Chicago. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge leap uh, to get there, and um, you know we just didn't have the resources available at the time or the you know the political will to do that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people too look at that and say, you know, I would love to go to Mars. Yeah. You know, I would love people are people signing to up. go there. It would yeah. be amazing to do that. But the problem is uh, the funding and the political will. You know, you have to have a, a mixture of the two. And will it be just the United States again? Yeah. I highly doubt that. It's going to have to be an international venture. Do the, we need a boogeyman? Do we need a, uh, a a nemesis, someone to compete against to get us to Mars, like we did to the moon? Uh, that would make it easy. <laughs> uh, the media love to use, you know, those right. packages that okay, a new space race. In fact, that's often invoked even now. You know, mm-hmm. with uh, with the Chinese, for example, sure, sure. Uh, going to, back to the moon with the robotic explorers, and then uh, with their space station. Now the Chinese are like looking that. to be physically man on the moon. Yeah. In by twenty. 20- yeah. There, there's still political clout to be gained by doing that achievement. I mean, it's a very exclusive club, and it still is. You know, one wonders if they would make that a launch pad to Mars, and then they would have, say, 15 years from now, the coup of being the first man on Mars would be a Chinese. Maybe. It's, yeah. it's, it's possible. I mean, again, they have a very systematic approach. They are planning things out. A yeah. lot of their um, robotic exploration programs are very well thought out um they do have their their act together Mm -hmm. and if i were a betting person um certainly i would place the you know that that if if we're going to go back to to the moon uh i wouldn't be at all surprised it would be the chinese before we do (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think oh i'm sorry i just was thinking in contrast to the competition the international space station it truly is an international space Mm -hmm. station something like 16 nations work together to put that together. And the astronauts that I've spoken to who spent time there, it's very meaningful for them that this was um, a result of international cooperation. And so it could be another model for going to Mars or probably not going back to the moon. I don't see us doing that. But I think Mars, as Glenn was saying, um, that idea of international cooperation, I do think that there's a lot of um, discussion among people at NASA about moon first or straight to Mars and the argument for moon first is that if we can practice stuff getting Mm -hmm. to the moon if we can set up a satellite launching system like Gateway um, that's orbiting the moon where we can you know not have to lift rockets from Earth's gravity 
and build something out there that just can leave, you know, directly from orbit and not have to worry about using up all that energy. There's definitely some benefits to that. On the other hand, other people are very much, we've already done the moon, why go back and retrace our own steps? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see what'll win out. I kind of think going back to the moon first is likelier. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a very much a political tool as well. You know, the recent effort for 2024, um, ironically, you know, would occur uh, during the next term of uh, mm-hmm. the president, whoever that may be, um, and to push that window forward, um, you know, to 2024 is extremely uh, optimistic. <laughs> mm. I mean, have have we have we disassembled that much? Um, that it would be, it's that difficult for us to go back to the moon in, in a span of five or six years? Well, we, you know, we need the, we need the, the, the launch vehicle. And SLS, the Space Launch System, is pretty much the only one capable of, of taking us to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in spite of what a lot of, um, you know, fans might look at with SpaceX and things like that, SLS is specifically designed for, um, taking payloads, large payloads, and putting them into uh, lunar orbit, you know, and, and to, to, to form the, the gateway the, um, and to take us to the moon. We just, uh, and that's being pushed around, you know, the first um, uh, flight of that launch vehicle. And so um, this idea of, uh, you know, being able to, to go to the moon in 2024, I, uh, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And part of it has to do with the fact that the way the system is set up is that whoever the current president is sets the pace. And so mm-hmm. when the president changes, plans that were in place kind of get thrown out and shuffled and rebudgeted. And I think that was one of the ad- weird advantages of the Kennedy assassination. It, it nobody was going to touch safe. it. Yeah. Yes. It became exactly. what's known in parlance as a golden watch. You know, mm-hmm. uh, basically when um, uh, someone of great political import uh, or, uh, you know, becomes canonized, if you will, sure. um, Kennedy's death uh, and assassination at that. And mm-hmm. nobody was going to touch that. Right. And so it was very much a bipartisan effort and mm-hmm. became even more so after his death. It's like, no, uh, we need to preserve his memory, if anything, to. You know, and this uh, is it. And this is it. So don't mm-hmm. touch it. Right. You know, don't right. um, don't. Deny that. Has ha, you know so much about NASA? Has NASA built in internal mechanisms to kind of weather those the political winds going this way? Now the political winds are going to go this way. Has NASA have they figured out how to? This is our goal. This is our course. We're going to. I'm not saying through you know. It, it, you've got two different kind of groups within in that question one is human spaceflight and the other is robotic exploration hmm. and of the two the robotic exploration side of nasa's budget and then you have aviation as well i mean that's the other a in nasa's is you know you have aerospace mm-hmm. but as far as the space side uh looking at the two uh the robotic exploration is much more um looking at uh, long-range planning uh, goals Mm -hmm. uh, for what's going to be done. And there's a much more systematic approach to that. There are studies that are done by the National Academies that give them basically plans, decadal plans. You know, this is what we want to do. This is Mm -hmm. what the scientific scientific committee wants us to do, the community want want us to do. 
They want us to go to Mars. They want us to go to Jupiter or whatever. And so they, they have their act much more so together on the robotic side than on the human side. The human side is much more politicized, much more disorganized, much more, as Dina mentioned, from one term to the next. And so it's very, very difficult to make any type of long-range effort beyond what's you know, the latest thing uh, in the administration. And certainly the 50th anniversary of Apollo. Somebody, everyone in the White House realizes, oh my gosh, there's going to be a lot of, you know, uh, media attention on this. We need to do something big. Ah, let's boom, <laughs> 2024. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> we got to have something in place. Sure. The um, Apollo itself, um, the Apollo 11 itself, uh, uh, I, I was just reading that uh, Neil Armstrong left behind something on the moon in memory of his daughter. Well, that was fictionalized. They haven't been was able it? to yeah. So the the truth is Is that like that, a pink ribbon? What is that <laughs> <laughs> lying in the lunar dust? I feel like we have to give spoilers for first man here. But <laughs> um a lot of astronauts have left things behind on the moon. And it's similar to what happens in pilgrimage, where people go on pilgrimage to Lourdes or they go to hmm. you know, other places and they leave something behind to show that they made that pilgrimage. Like, we were here, I was here. Mm-hmm. And um, the moon works beautifully as a, a type of pilgrimage, if you look at it that way. Um, with Neil Armstrong, what I know is that he was a very private person, mm-hmm. that a lot of other astronauts did leave items in, on the moon, including figurines, including personal things, including pictures of loved ones. Um, his wife at the time, Janet, they asked her, reporters did, if um, he was taking anything to the moon for her. She said yes, but then refused to say what it was when pressed. And in the movie First Man, you may know, like I said, spoilers, so (laughs) Um, Neil Armstrong's daughter Karen died of a brain tumor when she was about three. And in the movie, there's a bracelet that she wore, and he takes it with him to the moon, and there's a scene near the end of the movie where he throws Karen's bracelet into a crater on the moon to kind of have something of her there get moved very easily (laughs) (laughs) Um, whether that really happened or not there's we can't I mean there's nothing to rule out that it happened but there's no evidence it was sort of artistic license and there's each of the crew members um, when they go into space have something called a PPK which is personal preference kit Mm -hmm. it's basically a bag Mm -hmm. and inside Mm -hmm. that bag they can put whatever personal mementos anything that they want within Reason. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it has to be non-toxic. It has to, you know, things sure, that are dangerous. It has to fit. <laughs> has to be, you know, the, 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 so much can fit in this bag uh, because of the size limitations of the bag. It can't, you know, be bigger than the bag. And, then, of course, there's a weight uh, restriction mm-hmm. as well. And each crew member decides ahead of time what they're going to put in there. Um, the head of the astronaut office is aware of what's in there. You know, they, they have a meeting and, and discuss what's in there and so forth and approve it. But that's up to the individual that is not publicized so it's possible that a bracelet might have been on there um but you know who knows it's it's just it's a very personal thing it's something that they know this is a very special moment you know Mm -hmm. and and the astronauts that uh went to the surface of the moon basically were allowed two ppks one for the surface of the moon on board the lem and then one on on the command module you mentioned this personal kit I'm kind of curious that it kind of it, it gives me a thought. 
is what was this, what was the role that that may have played? The decision to include that may have played in the distinct possibility that these men would be trapped and left behind on the moon. And that would be the last thing that they would have would be these personal effects from home before they expired had, had they been trapped on the moon. I saw that uh, the story when Buzz Aldrin mm-hmm. was climbing back inside the limb from the moon's surface, his bulky spacesuit broke a switch that was a part of the launch, oh. and they ended up using a fountain pen. Yeah to get the switch to work again, to get off the moon. I mean, that's like, that's by a hair's breadth. I mean, <laughs> what if they didn't have a, what if he didn't have a pen? <laughs> but, you know, there they would have been trapped. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's such, it, it's so fraught with danger. It makes me wonder that uh, maybe there's a role that that personal kit would have played. Well, Dina could probably relay this, uh, especially about items and their symbolic nature and their mm-hmm. personal natures, because she has studied this. Yeah, I will say, though, that I think the pen was part of um, just the equipment that would have been yeah, on board. For sure. They used clipboards and pens for right. keeping track of stuff all the time. Um, with the Today, pe- they would have had their smartphone, and it wouldn't have fit <laughs> to make the switch work right. again. <laughs> it's true. Um Hopefully they had something with the stylus. Yeah. But, um, no, the personal preference kits, a lot of different things were brought. Um, astronauts I've talked to, people like to have space-flown things. So if you have a friend who has a piece of jewelry that's important and you take that with you into space and return it to them, then that's been in space. And mm. that really changes the feel of whatever the it is. The nature of the object. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. Um, another thing that I think Glenn was hinting at was um, back to Buzz Aldrin he brought communion with him um, mm. in his PPK to the lunar surface. And so he had a little sort of packet of communion wine. He had um, a chalice from um, his church, and he also had a wafer. And so he was able to take communion from, um, you know, his he's a Presbyterian, was a member of the Webster Presbyterian Church. And that becomes important symbolically. A lot of astronauts are quite religious, although NASA doesn't emphasize that. And um, they will take Bibles with them. They'll take copies of other religious documents. Um, A fully kosher Torah was taken up into space, not during the Apollo missions, but later by Jeff Hoffman. Um, But a lot of the astronauts during the Apollo era were Christian and took items with them. A few of them were sort of no no preference. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. they were less religious, I guess, than the others. Mm -hmm. But um, those personal preference kits allowed you to look, you know, it's like any time you're going camping or going away from civilization for a while, to have that kind of comfort of home, something to read, pictures to look at. And it's not unique. I mean, you had pilots that would wear charms or they oh, sure. would put something. Picture, their wife, their know, wife's yeah. picture is uh, on the... A little saint yeah. on the dashboard sure, or exactly. something like that. Um, things like that. Um, and... and these astronauts, first and foremost, were test pilots. And so superstition, you know. There's and, a carryover. Oh, yeah. that Dina studied oh, this sure. quite a bit. I mean, it's it's there. Um, right. the, um, number 13. Remember Apollo 13? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Case in point. <laughs> so, um, you know, these things allowed uh, not only uh, mementos from their families, their, their, you know, their personal lives, but also to some degree perhaps luck. You know, as well, Mm -hmm. if I bring this with me, you know, good things are going to happen, not bad things. 
Right. Well, it's been a really fascinating conversation. We never did get to the uh, freeze-dried food here that we have in front of us. (laughs) So people are wondering, what is this scattered stuff here? Before we go, I just want to talk a little bit about, uh, uh, in, in front of us, we have shrimp cocktail. And we oh, have, you want the shrimp cocktail? Oh, that's oh, this is this is shrimp. Oh, this, this is also shrimp cocktail. Okay, this one is black. Yeah, okay, but that's quite old. <laughs> yeah, this okay. this is this is Russian, and that's uh, US. <laughs> three ounces of cold water. Um, so this and all of this uh, this food this goes way back to did you say mercury? Yeah, the, well, the earliest ones here, uh, the little oh, this one here. Um, this is very similar. Those of you who are listening, we have uh, a lot of plastic pack- freeze-dried packets on the table. Yeah, I don't know for sure. Um, uh, this this particular one here, um, flew in Gemini, or er, uh, was the type that was aboard the Mercury program as well as the Gemini program. These were just little tiny uh, fr- uh, toast bars, cinnamon toast, you know, like you'd have at home, but shrunk down um, and then stabilized so that it wouldn't spoil. Um, all the moisture removed and so forth, so you could pop these into your into your mouth. So this is probably the oldest one, because during the Mercury flights, um, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, the first two, they they weren't up long enough really to work up an appetite. Fifteen minutes. Right. <laughs> Only fifteen minutes. It wasn't until John Glenn with the orbital flight, he was the first American to try food in space, and he had a tube uh, of applesauce. Basically, it looked like a toothpaste tube mm-hmm. with a little screw top on it, and he would open his visor when he was in a the spacecraft and then squeeze this uh, this applesauce to just to see if if he could swallow and how mm-hmm. well it worked in, into space. Who was the one that smuggled the sandwich on board? That was uh, John Young from Gemini 3. Okay. Yeah, John Young. John <laughs> Young. sandwich in his pocket. No, it was corned beef. <laughs> corned beef sandwich. It was a corned beef uh, sandwich. From Maury's Deli down on East and 5th Street. I, it was a deli and it was at the Cape and he uh, ordered one up and um, uh, it was basically a uh, uh, a sandwich that uh, Gus Grissom was the commander of that flight. That was the first flight of the Gemini uh, mission, and uh, John Young brings out a out of his once they're in orbit, and he says, "Boy, you know, I could sure go for a corned beef sandwich." <laughs> I just happen to have one. Uh, <laughs> and Gus Grissom says, "Yeah, yeah, I would too." And I forget the name. There is the name of the deli, but it was a Florida deli where they uh, where he picked it up. But John says he whips it out and. Gus Grissom looks at him and says, put that away. <laughs> I got takeout. <laughs> and, he, and he eats a bite of it. And if you go to this, I think it's at the Smithsonian still, uh, he brought it back. <laughs> and Space it's been embedded beef. in a, a Lucite block, uh-huh. uh, the, the sandwich. And I think it was down at the Astronaut Hall of Flame and Hall of Fame in Florida, so you can see it. But it, it created quite a stir mm-hmm. <laughs> because the crumbs started to float around, things like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. He sure. didn't eat it. What, what are the, I mean, psychologically, what are the astronauts, I mean, you know, I mean, you get kind of depressed after a week of, you It's know, gotten much better. Yeah. Much better. Yeah. And then what is it, too, like even, even how fluids are recycled from the human body and purified and once again made just don't think about it yeah, just don't it, and it's really just now does nasa have any kind of efforts that they do with psychological training if you will to get astronauts over these natural humps so to speak that we have psychologically about you know drinking recycled urine to be my guess is that it wouldn't be so much they have to train it into them i think the selection process Probably is looking how, for people how for they whom, personally right. just yeah. adapt to it. 
and you know you don't go into the program for the food. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's the, for the takeout. That's <laughs> right, for the takeout. It's it's one of those things where you know that's secondary. I mean, obviously you need to eat, um, and for long duration flights, um, especially aboard the space station where you're up there, you know, for up to a year, or perhaps more, mm. um, having a, you know a tasty meal is certainly something that's good to developmentally, you know, mm-hmm. on, on, on mm-hmm. your. Uh, uh, day-to-day activities, but the food has progressed a long ways. I mean, we've learned an awful lot. And Hydroponic so, lettuce, lettuce yep, now. There's our own food. an espresso machine up there yep. now. Yep, they even brought uh, uh, carbonated beverages during the shuttle program, Coke and Pepsi, obviously. Uh, big competitors, uh, one couldn't be outdone. They both tried different ways of uh, having carbonated um, uh, soda in space. And uh, so they flew test missions with that, uh, which was, was pretty popular <laughs> wow. from the commercial side. But they've made great strides. And then in the space station, too, with the resupply flights, they will bring up fresh fruit and, and vegetables and food uh, that would normally be perishable. So they, they will bring those into space during those resupply flights. So those are something that the crews can look forward to. There's some well. great videos on YouTube you can see of the fruit packets being opened. Yeah. And, Fruit going everywhere. Yeah, and great fruit. And floating around, biting strawberries and yeah. blueberries. Yeah. And they, they just, oh, they love that. I mean, it's a big treat because the smell, too. You know, the, right. uh, it, you're up there for a long period of time, and suddenly you, you smell an orange. Although it's, it's like, hard. Wow. You have to put it right up. Yeah. Because yeah. those molecules don't travel the way they would. Yeah. In a vacuum. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, I want to thank you both for coming in today and talking to us about the, uh, the 50th anniversary of Apollo and all the history and the connections behind it. My guests have been Glenn Swanson and Dina Weibel. Uh, uh, Glenn is a NASA historian f- uh, from Wyoming, Michigan, and uh, Dina is a cultural anthropologist, and both of them specialize in the history of NASA and spaceflight, and uh, particularly here with the uh, 50th anniversary of the Apollo uh, space mission. Both of them can be found at dinaweibel.space and Glenn with one N Swanson.space. I'm Tom Norton, and this is the Whole Picture Podcast powered by WKTV Community Media. Thank you for listening and watching.